the Canadian Military History Podcast. Music provided by the Calgary Highlanders. If you're interested in listening to more music from the Calgary Highlanders, please download their CD Onward from iTunes. Today my guest is Lieutenant Colonel Mike Vernon. Mike Vernon enrolled at RMC in 1981 and moved on to the PPCLI and served as an officer. He left the military for a brief period of five years to pursue a career with the CBC as a journalist and as a producer. He returned to the Canadian Forces by enrolling in the Calgary Highlanders, where he worked his way to the appointment of commanding officer. He's also the producer of the documentary called Desert Lions, which is a documentary about soldiers serving in Afghanistan and specifically with an organization known as the Omelet, the Operational Mentor Liaison Teams. Please welcome to the podcast, Lieutenant Colonel Mike Vernon. Colonel Vernon, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks. It's good, it's good to be here. So you and I worked in Africa, and I really had a good time working there with you. And Yeah, I hope we can talk about that a little bit later in the podcast. That'd be great. You've had a chance to review the four questions, so you know where we're going. It's pretty much a set format. So I can get right into the first question and shed some light on why you joined the Canadian Armed Forces. I think the short answer is I joined it for utterly selfish reasons, <laughs> uh, like, like a lot of people, I think if they're being honest about why they joined the military. I have to I have to wonder sometimes when I hear people or see them on television quoted as saying, you know, I, I joined to serve my country, I joined to serve the queen and all this stuff. And I just think, really? I, I joined, you know, like there used to be a t-shirt for the British Army, right? That said, you know, join the British Army, uh, water ski in Malta, you know, mountain climb in Nepal, meet interesting people and kill them. Uh, I mean, that was in the 70s when you could say that kind of thing, very politically incorrect today, I suppose. But I mean, I think that is... That's the main thing uh, for me. I grew up in a military family. I was an army brat for, for as long as I could remember. My dad, Brian Vernon, was in the Black Watch when I was a when I was a young boy. So uh, I remember, you know, in addition to all my Fisher Price toys and etch a sketch, that there was his hairspawn, his Glengarry, his red hackles, uh, kilts, green coatees, mess kits, whatever I could I could get into. It was almost like in the old uh, TV show, Mr. Dress-Up, right, with a tickle trunk <laughs> full of uh, yep. um, dress-up stuff, you know, uh, costumes. I mean, that was that was my childhood when I was four, five, six years old. So it seemed like a natural progression. And then as, as his career went on, you know, the Black Watch was disbanded, or the regular battalions were disbanded in 1970. And uh, he went on to join the Patricias and then the Airborne Regiment. And so then I, there were maroon berets to play with and jump smocks and, you know, highly shone jump boots and things like that. So it was kind of a natural progression for me as a child to, when I turned about 15, to join Army Cadets, get my 70s haircut, and just sort of emulate, I guess, walk in my father's footsteps for the, you know, uh, as a as a teenager. And, and I saw the advantages of 
going to do a, a, a jump course through cadets going on exchanges to the United Kingdom, you know, as a teenager where you could drink when you're 16, things like that. So again, it was, it was, you know, it was what interested me from a historical traditions, adventure, firing weapons, jumping out of planes, all that stuff that my dad enjoyed, I, I also enjoyed. So that those were my selfish reasons for, for joining the Army. What was the world like when you joined? Well, it was still, uh, I joined in 1981 to go to uh, the Royal Military College in Kingston. So at that time, the Cold War was still going strong. Ronald Reagan was the president of the United States. Pierre Trudeau was, I think, in his last term as prime minister in Canada. I think it was kind of unusual then to have a military haircut as a high school student, you know, my graduating year in high school. So you kind of stood out for for that kind of a decision, for making a a career with the military. And... it was. It's interesting to think back on that period now and to explain to my own son, who's 15, you know, what it was like when the world was kind of divided in half between communism and democracy, the West versus China and Russia. Right. And then what were you like when you joined? I think you already touched on some of that, but maybe there's <laughs> a little, a few more secrets in there. I was Looking back, I was, I was probably a pretty... Uh, pretty straight-laced kid. I was, you know, I was athletic. Well, I was fit, but not necessarily much good at playing team sports. It was more sort of individual sports and fitness. You know, I did well academically. I found that because we moved so much as a military family, I I found that focusing on my, my studies was kind of a way to, I suppose, to stand out and to excel in a new a new location, a new town, a new school. So, And it's almost embarrassing to say, but I, I think I was about 11 years old when I first rode away to a Canadian Forces recruiting office looking for information on Royal Military College. And uh-huh. I, I mean, I was, I was stunned that, you know, given my handwriting at the time, I was kind of stunned that they would actually take me seriously and send me brochures in the mail, right? I thought, well, oh, they, they can't be very smart or, or they can't be very uh, discriminating if they're going to ship off these glossy brochures to an 11-year-old. So when I was a teenager in my sort of final years of high school, I, I was kind of focused. You know, when I wasn't thinking about girls, I was kind of focused on getting the right marks and sort of all around. I mean, it sounds like resume building, I guess, is what we would call it today, in order to be accepted to go to RMC. I mean, I do remember my high school graduation, you know, wearing a <laughs> wearing a chocolate brown suit, which I, I cringe when I think about that, in 1990, 1981. And, and because I was going into the Army, I thought, I'm never going to have a chance to grow a beard. So I did my best to grow, you know, a beard when I was in grade 12. Right. So I had the, it was kind of like an Amish beard, though. It was like a... So there was no mustache to speak of, but and a whole lot of hair sort of below my lower lip and on my neck, right? And I, so that's my graduation photo was this guy in a chocolate brown suit with an Amish beard. So, wow. uh, <laughs> well, it's interesting that you say that because I, when I used to work in recruiting, I remember that there were certain criteria that recruiters were looking for for an RMC applicant. And you had to be on a sports team. You had to have good mark. You had to be involved in the community. All these little highlights. So it's interesting that you say you were trying to pad your resume or trying to be the best applicant you could be to get into RMC. And even back then in 1981. Well, I didn't. I didn't really have a plan B. You know, <laughs> I guess. I guess I was. I was very single-minded. Like a lot of my friends were. They've all gone on to successful careers and stuff. But at the time, their their plan was just to go to I don't know the University of Victoria which is where I was living at the time in Victoria. Whereas I was like, I'm going to be an infantry officer in the PPCLI and I'm going to RMC. But to do that, I've got to get decent marks in chemistry and physics and other courses where I don't have sort of natural ability. So if if I hadn't got into the Army at that time, I'm not sure 
I didn't have a plan B, I'm not sure what I would have done. Right. Should we move on to the next question, or is there anything else about your entry into the CF that you'd like to talk about? No, no, that, that's good. What's your most memorable experience or the highlight in the Canadian Armed Forces? The highlight for me would be uh, the opportunity I had in 2010 to go to Afghanistan to make a documentary or a series of documentaries for the Canadian Army. That was an idea that I tried to do as, as a former CDC journalist. I had tried to do it as an independent documentary, but couldn't get sort of a quick turnaround approval from the CDC or the National Film Board. So in that case, my plan B was to go to the military and say, look, I'm a reservist now with the Calgary Highlanders. I had this experience in, as a video journalist with the CDC. I'd like to make a documentary about um, operational mentor and liaison teams. And, uh, you know, I would do it for the, the military if you pay me as a reservist. And then, you know, the military would re- retain editorial control over it. So quite happily, from my perspective, the Army Public Affairs said, yeah, you know what, that uh, we have a bit of a niche that we can, it fills a, a niche. Because although Combat Camera goes to Afghanistan and shoots video and still photographs, nobody in the Army is acting like Army News was in Canada with Army reporters telling stories from Afghanistan. So that's what I proposed to do. They said, go ahead. So for so for two months in uh, August and September 2010, I pretty well had carte blanche with my video equipment to go throughout the Canadian area of operations in Panjway and shoot whatever stories I wanted to shoot. So I had the level of access that I never had when I was in Afghanistan uh, 10 years or eight years earlier with the CBC as a, as a civilian. You know, I could, in 2010, I'm a, a lieutenant colonel. You know, I would just say to a public affairs officer, look, I'd like to go to Spurwingar to see Charles Company 1RCR for a week. They would book me on a helicopter. I'd go there. I didn't have a, any kind of a minder, public affairs person looking over my shoulder. Right. I'd link up with a company and shoot their story, you know, and, uh, and just see what happened. So to me, that was, and plus the fact, the, the finished product, which is a, a documentary called Desert Lions, ultimately was almost unchanged from what I shot and wrote and edited with some help in Ottawa. Whereas if I had done it for CBC, there would have been all kinds of hands in the mix changing this phrase or that's part of the script or something. In this case, much to my surprise, frankly, the commander of the Army saw the documentary at Lieutenant General Devlin at the time, and he said, there's only one thing he wanted changed, and he wanted the, he wanted the word reservist changed to soldier to describe some of the soldiers in the omelet, just right. to keep it more generic. So a couple of things you said in there. First of all, where can someone watch that documentary, Desert Lions? The Army made it available on YouTube. So if you just go to YouTube and search Desert Lions Afghanistan, it'll it'll pop up. I think I think it's had about 70,000 views wow. since they put it up in 2011. Amazing. Something else you said, just to shed some light for those that don't personally know you, you did highlight your entry into RMC and highlight your entry into the PPCLI. And then during your last explanation, you explained that you were a member of the Calgary Highlanders. Can you shed some light on that transition, how you got sure. from one place to the other? Yeah, so, so I did my time at RMC, and then I, um, when I graduated, I went into the uh, the Patricias, and I did like a nine-year short service engagement. And then at the end of that, in about 1994, I just, you know, it was the end of the Cold War. Uh, you know, I had a, you know, I had a sense that I was following in my father's footsteps a little bit too closely. You know, I, I was literally, I had served in the Third Battalion in Victoria with the same people who would serve with him in the same place 10 or 15 years earlier. At that point, it felt like, okay, the Cold War is over. What, what's going to happen to the military now? 
and should I not maybe move down my own path? So I decided to go into journalism at that point. And I, um, when my when my nine years of uh, short service engagement was up, then I uh, I, I went across, moved to Calgary, and uh, was able to get a job with uh, the CBC. And then they trained me as a video journalist. But after about five years as a civilian, uh, or on the you know on the supplementary uh, reserve list, I, I started to miss the military, and so I joined the Calgary Highlanders as a reservist in uh, 1999. Are there any highlights or memorable experiences of your service with the Calgary Highlanders? I was lucky that I got to be the commanding officer of the Highlanders at the time when they had a significant number of their soldiers uh, uh, on tour in Afghanistan. Uh, as well, uh, we celebrated the Regimental Centennial when I was the CEO and did a two-week battlefield tour in Europe. That was probably the highlight of that, just going to Vimy, various places in Holland. We went to Dieppe as well and Paris. So that was... a uh, a great way to to finish that time as a as a reservist, and it, and you know it's interesting. It was for me. I, I think I had more fun. I know I had more fun as a reservist in a Highland regiment than I did as a as a Patricia. At you know as the Cold War was winding down and before uh, Yugoslavia was winding up and, and places like that in the 1990s. You know I just. Right. It felt like I had joined. I think I'd always been infatuated with my father's experience in the Black Watch, and so. This was kind of a chance for me to experience life in a Highland regiment with all its traditions, you know, the music, haggis, the customs at a mess dinner and things like that. So it just had a bit more flavor to it. Yeah, I've experienced the same exact things. Mm -hmm. So who is your greatest influence or who is the most memorable character that you've encountered in the Canadian Army or in the CF all all told? Because I know you have worked with some fairly memorable Navy characters. (laughs) Yeah, I think, uh, I mean, I have a couple. Maybe I could just do a, a couple of quick little snapshots. I mean, I've, I've touched on my father as, as an influence, and I mean, he retired as a, as a major general, and he, but he was very kind of, a, a, I, say, I would say, a liberal parent, you know, not, not overly liberal, but I mean, when you think about sort of the great Santini kind of, you know, Robert Duvall character in the movie from years ago really in his son's face about you're going to join the Marine Corps. I mean, my, my father was never that way. I mean, he, he just wanted me to do whatever made me happy, whatever I could excel at. But he was there as kind of a living mentor example. And, and it was really watching him and the things that he, that he did, the way that he treated people, the way that he approached his job that rubbed off on me or that, that had more of an impact on me than if he had stood there and made a whole bunch of speeches at me and, and things like that. So I would think the whole time that I was in the military, if I was confronted by a situation that, that kind of maybe perplexed me or I didn't know how to how to deal with it, then I would uh, I would think, you know, like, what would my dad do? How would he handle this? You know, right. how would he treat this person? And he had, um, I have two other, pe- two other people in mind. Um, one is one of his closest friends who was in the Black Watch with him called uh, Lieutenant Colonel Ike Kennedy. He went from the Black Watch to the Royal Canadian Regiment and the Airborne Regiment. And uh, when I was doing my phase three officer training in Gagetown, he ran the course. Uh, in the sort of 25 years that I spent in the military, that was probably the most demanding 10 or 12 weeks, however, however long it was, that I had to endure. You know, it was... We literally came into Gagetown. We'd been there for a previous summer. My peers and I are getting to be a little bit senior at RMC and a little bit cocky and arrogant. Right. Well, he took us and basically threw us into the field, into the into the rain for five straight days, no sleep, no sympathy. I remember at one point, you know, one RCR warrant officer showing us how to shave in a mud puddle. <laughs> 
And it was just your sleeping bag got wet. Well, that's I guess that's too bad, eh? That that sucks, sir. And it was just it was a miserable, uh, challenging summer that a lot of us I think in that after that first week we you know we went out for drinks in Fredericton and we're kind of going like all right is this we thought we wanted to be in the infantry is this what it's going to be like this is this kind of sucks right <laughs> and, it, and I mean nobody quit I think we'd come too far to quit. But by the end of that summer, you really felt like you had accomplished something. You'd come through a, a difficult patch of training. You'd come through as a group. It was it was really uh, some significant bonding that, that took place through all the sleep deprivation and hallucinating and stuff like that. Right. And the, and the thing with I, I Kennedy is he was he was a larger well, he's still alive so a larger than life figure and somebody who totally loved the military the military culture. You know, I mean, he had a he had us over to his house you know, at one point for a dinner that he made for probably ten or twelve of the officer cadets. You know, so your the stories are flowing. He he's got a he had a house like a museum. You know, fantastic military library tables that have been hand carved in uh, in India or Pakistan. You know, that that part of the world when he had been over there with the UN in the 1970s. Art on the walls. He just he totally. It was consuming for him, just the military life, the military culture, military history, knowledge, and he did his best to impart that over the summer to us and had a significant effect on us. And you know, and I had seen him when I was a young boy. Like I, he he would come to the house when he and my father were both in the airborne in the early 70s. And I remember that when he went away on his peacekeeping tour, sort of in India, Kashmir, I think was the general area. But he sent back handcrafted silver goblets in a you know a hand carved wooden box with regimental crests on it for for my parents, for example. And he also sent back two complete Karakoram scout uniforms that he had had tailored to fit my brother David and me. So. From you know, from the top of the uh, you know the, the Pakistani beret on the head to the man jammies, gray man jammies with a ox blood leather uh, cartridge belt and a, and a waist belt, and then similar leather uh, sandals. So we would wear it when we would leave the house to reenact the Second World War with our friends in a playground or something. We would you know we could potentially show up in these Karakoram scout uniforms when we're you know I think I was in about grade three then. Grade three, grade four. Wow. And then you said there was another memorable character or influence? Yeah, there's just, you know, I, I think because of, because of when I joined the Army, you know, attitudes in, in the early 80s towards women in the military, homosexuals in the military, obviously very different from what they are now. And when I went to RMC, uh, my class was the second class with women. And, uh, and, and they, you know, they did not have an easy time. At RMC, I, I, you know, I would not have wanted to be a woman at RMC during that transitional period. But the the person I have in mind is someone that I met on uh, in 2010 when I was in Afghanistan. When I went to Spurwingar to see Charles Company, their RCR company commander was Major Eleanor Taylor, and there were several other women in from that battalion that I sort of had encounters with, or you know, sort of saw a little bit uh, during the two months I was there, uh, who, who all impressed me as women, you know, officers in the infantry doing this hard job under extremely difficult conditions. And and it really kind of, I think, I mean, my attitudes were changing. Uh, I thought they had changed from when I first joined the military, but they had definitely changed by the time I came back from Afghanistan and saw, for example, what kind of uh, a company commander uh, Major Taylor was. I heard people talking about her in Kandahar 
and saying just how how well regarded she was by the soldiers in her company. And I didn't hear anybody talking about her, her male peers as company commanders. Now, they, they may have been just as good or better. or I, I don't know. I wasn't doing a scientific survey. But that was one reason I wanted to go to uh, Sperlingar and spend some time was just the sense of curiosity. Well, you know, what that would be a great story, right, uh, from a documentary point of view uh, that incorporates a, a female company commander. So when I finally, you know, I think I spent about 12, almost two weeks in Sperlingar, and everything that I'd heard about her before I got there was confirmed. I mean, I, I, I got to sit in on various O groups and, you know, and went on a patrol or two that she was leading. And she's extremely fit, intelligent, well-regarded by her soldiers. When we're climbing over the grape walls and everything else in 40, 45 degree heat, she's leading by example the whole way. You know, when we took a break at midday and one day in a grape hut and all the men, myself included, kind of flaked out just to get out of the heat. She kept engaging with the Afghans uh, from the Afghan National Army who were with us. She didn't allow herself that even that hour break out of the sun. So uh, I was incredibly impressed by her. And it really just, I think it just confirmed to me that this is a different army than the one that I joined in 1981. When you've got female infantry officers of this caliber, that, that's incredible. Right. Anything else? No, that's good. So what was the greatest challenge you had to overcome? Well, I, you know, I'd be curious to know what, what you, your sort of thoughts on Sierra Leone, you know, after our time together there in 2011. But that's, that's the one experience that, I, I mean, it was, it was a fantastic experience just working with the Sierra Leone Army in that environment. But it's one that I continue to sort of run through my mind even now, sort of two years later. Yeah, I on agree. A, on a weekly basis, just trying to think, like, what could we have done could we have done more to help them? Could, could should we have done less? What what is the secret to to being an effective mentor with uh, in a country like that that's just been you know has seen decades of war, has, is so strapped for resources and yet is so plagued by corruption and cronyism? How do you how do you solve that? How do you crack that nut? Yeah, and then as an ethical soldier you know that you're working within the bounds of your reasonable limits, but then will your efforts go towards something equally ethical? And you're, you always have that question in the back of your mind, I believe. And you're thinking as well, I think that, okay, so here's what the intent is and, you know, blah, blah, blah. How is this, whatever it is you're doing, whether you're running a machine gun range or you're arranging money to buy video equipment for the public affairs officer, how is this going to get corrupted? How is yeah. it going to go off the rails yeah. and be exploited by somebody else? And it, that kind of cynicism that seeps in. But I don't think, I mean, in hindsight, I don't think we were particularly well prepared. Well, we weren't, right, in terms of how to mentor African soldiers. Right. It's really steep learning curve. Absolutely. Yeah. Any other challenges that uh, come to light? You know, I wouldn't say it's a, it's a challenge so much as a it's a regret. And the one the only regret that I have about and it's kind of a, a regret about journalism and the military and where they meet, would be that when, when I was first starting at the CBC in the, in the mid-90s, my, my father was the commander of Land Force Central Area in Toronto. So he's a major general. He should have been you know, at the top of his career and uh, with a couple of years left to go, if uh, God willing. And then at, at that time, there's the... Uh, just prior to this disbandment of the Airborne Regiment, uh, you know, about which he, you know, he felt quite strongly, he was sent to Petawawa to basically see if the regiment had reformed itself. This is in 1995. 
And he went there on a weekend with the staff. They wrote a report. They said that, you know, basically under new leadership, the regiment was not the same unit that been in Somalia, that, uh, you know, the uh, the bad apples, et cetera, had been uh, purged from its ranks. And it was, you know, it was good to go. And he submitted that report on a Sunday night up the Army chain of command. And then Monday, just afternoon, the defense minister, David Colonnette, announced that basically the regiment was, uh, you know, beyond repair and it was being disbanded by the Liberal government. So at that time, and, uh, and I'm working at the CBC at this time as a, you know, he's a young producer following stories like this, and it followed sort of the, what had led to this. So at, at the time, it, it seemed pretty clear that to my father, I think, that the people in power hadn't even read his report. They, they'd made the decision already. Right. Now, a month later, the Bloc Quebecois gets up in the House of Commons, and they say, look, there's a, there's a third airborne video. It's, it's pretty bad, it, uh, and we want the government to, to react to this. Well, my father had mentioned this video on the first page of his report and said that it was being investigated by the military police and basically showed soldiers at a party giving each other shocks with a field telephone to see who could endure electrical current right. uh, as they were drinking beers and stuff. You know, he said, he said it was probably pretty sophomoric, you know, something you'd see, you know, college students doing, but in light of what had happened with the airborne, it should be investigated by the military police. So on the first day in the House of Commons, the government says, no, there is no third video. On the second day that the, the, that the bloc continues to hammer the defense minister, then it's clear they've read the report and they basically echo what my father said in his, re- in his report, that it was sophomoric but under investigation. And then when the bloc continued to press its attack uh, on the third day, I think it was a Thursday, then the government said, oh, my God, you know, it's, it's worse than we thought. We've been misled. You know, the military, some of the military has been covering this up. So that's a bit of a long preamble. I'm a, as I said, I'm a producer in Calgary at Newsworld at the time. I phoned up my father and said, I'm looking to book a guest for this story. And I didn't know that he had written that report. Do you know anybody that knows anything about what the government's talking about? And he said, well, yeah, as a matter of fact, I do. You know, I, I wrote a report, and that's what they referred to yesterday. So I said, well, would you want to come on television and, and talk about this? He said, okay, well, let me, I think, I think so. He said, I wrote the report. I can respond to it. I just need to get, you know, permission. Just let people in the chain of command know that I'm going to do it. But it's, you know, at the time, it's Thursday night in Ottawa. A lot of people are sort of heading home for a long weekend or, you know, they're not, they weren't going to be there and they weren't, they weren't available. So he, he took the decision to come on TV, did a sort of five minute interview on News World and basically he said, look, there's, there's no cover up. I wrote the report. It's in the report. I, you know, I, I submitted the report more than a month ago before the regiment was ordered disbanded. And, uh, you know, nothing from what, from my perspective, you know, I, it was a bit of a coup getting someone so close to the story to, to come on. Unfortunately, the next day, he basically got fired from his job as the commander of Land Force Central Area for having basically called out the uh, called out the Liberal government about this report. And then subsequent to that, the, I mean, the army was going through a very rough time. You know, in general, uh, here you're called, you know, the decade of darkness. Well, right. You know, he, my father was posted to Ottawa. He basically, I think, he did a did a job there that was probably way below his abilities for about a year, and then was just basically expected to go quietly into the into the good night and uh, and so that's what he did so that is my only it's not a, it's not so much a challenge but it it's a regret my only regret i would say in my in my life you know is that unfortunately that i was the guy that 
sort of made him the offer to come on TV, which ended his career. Right. And I, I mean, I've talked to him about it afterwards, and and he said, you know, in hindsight, would he do it again? And probably not, because you, you know, you stand up like that, and you're the guy that becomes the casualty. And is is it worth? Is that what you want to fall on your sword for? Right. But at least he doesn't hold me responsible, but I but I feel a sense of responsibility because of just how my uh, initial, my growing career, I suppose, as a journalist intersected with his, his career as a military officer. Oh. I personally, I don't know, I, I want people to know, I mean, because people like you, let's say, who serve with him, wouldn't know the details of well, why he got fired. Uh, yeah. and, and that's exactly what it was. Just like, and then when you wear that rank, right, if you make a, the wrong political decision, or you piss off your political masters, then you're you're expendable, right? Regardless of the fact that you put in 35 yeah. years of service or 33 years of service. So I can't change that, but I, I can tell that story so that people know that it wasn't because he was a bad officer, but that he that he lost that position and that his career didn't finish the way that he wanted it to. Yeah, he was um, my boss at the time mm-hmm. in, in LFCA, so yeah. I would have been. My memory is is the warrior pin and the warrior test and the warrior book, which as a section commander at the time, I really valued that warrior book. And I know that there are people that treasured it and you could teach right out of it. It was a great resource. And and I'll never forget that that was his his influence, at least on me, despite the fact that I was a section commander and he was a commander of an area. I I do remember that quite vividly. Well, and he actually, I I think the person who probably did the more of the, the detailed work in bringing it together was uh, Lieutenant Colonel Ike Kennedy, who I mentioned earlier in the podcast. He was, that was one of his projects at the time, was right. just to give the reserves or, or the militia at the time this, this reference so that they, they could focus on some basic soldier skills and, and, and have that, you know, when it comes to weapons handling and things like that. Yeah, it was a really good resource. I always remember it didn't have page numbers, so it's hard to re- reference back. <laughs> but uh, nevertheless, it, it, I, I think I still have it somewhere. I, I could dig it out and uh, still look at it. I think some of it's still valid. Is there anything else you'd like to talk about? No, I think, you know, I mean, except for that one uh, story about my father. I, I, I was, you know, 25 years in the military and uh, regular in reserve, and I, you know, I really don't regret any of that. I, I mean, I think... I think I was able to have the career that I wanted to have. And as a reservist, you know, it allowed me to also pursue my other interest in journalism and, and, and to basically have my cake and eat it too, you know, to do both things. I mean, some people, I think some people find it hard to to imagine the two going hand in hand. But I, I mean, I find the people whose company I enjoy most in the military and, and as journalists, very, very similar personality traits. So they, they might be reluctant to admit it, but, you know, both of them, they like... They like a variety. They like adventure. They like a good story. They're not in it for the money. They're they're in it, you know, for the experience. And and I certainly have no regrets about uh, the 25 years I spent in uniform. It, it was a yeah an amazing set of experiences. Well, I think that's one of the things that got me interested in doing this podcast because to as someone said to me a few weeks ago, to be successful in the military, you have to be a good storyteller. And and the way you relate that from uh, journalists to soldiers, I think there is a very a very good tie. I think this has been a great podcast. I hope everyone enjoys listening to it. And I, I just want to say that I really enjoyed working with you in, in Sierra Leone. Uh, I think we had a good command team. And I'm, I'm really glad that you decided to sign up for my inaugural podcast, my first one, and using your journalist background to try and help me out through the uh, initial groundbreaking. So I, I'm really thankful for that. 
don't know. Is no, there anything it's else? It's been my pleasure. I, I appreciate the interest from you. And uh, yeah, that time in Sierra Leone was a uh, one of the sort of probably the top three things I've done in the military, just with you know the country itself, but also that uh, close knit band of brothers. You know, the ten or twelve Canadians in a foreign country doing their job, doing it well, but also having a good time together. I, that I will never forget that experience. Yeah, neither will I. So this has been uh, Lieutenant Colonel Mike Vernon from the PPCLI, from the Calgary Highlanders, and from my own personal tour in Sierra Leone. Thanks for joining us tonight, and I hope you become a subscriber yourself. Yeah, no problem. All right. Good night, Mike. Thank you for listening to the Canadian Military History Podcast. I hope that you've enjoyed this episode. If you did enjoy the podcast, please leave some feedback on iTunes. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, please send me an email at cmhp at gmail.com. Please let me know if you'd like me to read your comments on the air. While you're waiting for our next episode, please visit the website at www.canadianmilitaryhistorypodcast.ca or the CMHP Facebook page. If you'd like to support the podcast by making a donation, please click the PayPal link on the webpage. All donations will go directly into the production of the podcast. All music is used with the express permission of the commanding officer. NTAG music is provided by the Governor General's Horse Guards. This is a Mike LaCroix production. Views and opinions expressed on the Canadian Military History Podcast are those of the guests of the podcast and do not necessarily reflect the views of Michael Lacroix Productions, the Canadian Armed Forces, or the Government of Canada. All recordings are copyright Michael Lacroix Productions.